This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Alright, this is day two of recording, making this episode the longest I've ever done and kind of prepared for. And I want to transition away from curation technologies, which will still be a part of the conversation moving forward, and move away from consumption and look at kind of the, the flip side, creating. What is AI capable of doing now? How can it be used as a tool to expand to expand human creativity? And to start, I want to offer two thought experiments before I kind of go into what AI is currently capable of. And the first is presented by John Searle, and it's called The Chinese Room. Imagine you are isolated in a room with an instruction manual that equips you with an appropriate response to any written string of Chinese characters that appear in the room. With a sufficiently comprehensive manual, you could have a pretty convincing conversation with a Mandarin speaker without ever understanding a word. So that's that's thought experiment one. The second is called the infinite monkey theorem. And it goes like this. If you had an infinite amount of time and you gave a monkey a typewriter and it was allowed to just type away at whatever, in that span of infinity... It would type every great work of literature ever written. Shakespeare, Dickens, Austin, every great work of literature, plus the ones that haven't been written, would come out of that typewriter. And many, many times over. And obviously that would be combined with a whole lot of meaningless characters that don't really form into a story. The point is that infinity can contain all this order and beauty and also an enormous amount of chaos and randomness. So to bring that back to AI, the reason I share both of those stories, and you can probably tell that they're related, it's because until there's an artificially intelligent being with consciousness, what is the point of AI creating? Are there examples of AI creating on its own free will? I don't think we see that yet. But based on what I'm about to share, I think it's something that's very realistic in, in decades to come. So let's take the conversation of AI creating. Let's take that medium by medium. And to start, we'll pick on music. What is AI capable of doing musically? Well, as Dusatoy writes in The Creativity Code, music is the most promising medium for AI because it is so pattern-based. And of course, we every song has its own unique thing. But I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about the types of creativity, but music is a whole lot of patterns. It's a whole lot of algorithms either consciously thought of or unconsciously thought of by the artist. There's a riff, there's a, a rhythm that a song follows. And one example of a kind of artificial intelligent algorithm that creates music is called Juke Deck. And it was written about in the book and I tried to find the website and it seems like it's shut down, but it did exist. 
And what Juke Deck was, was AI music for kind of commercial use. The incentive was a monetary one. Because when people make commercials, they don't need some fancy track. Sometimes they just want some easy royalty-free background music. And that makes artificial intelligence and, you know, kind of algorithms creating these very mundane songs, it's a good use for it. Because I think any musician doesn't want to waste their time making royalty-free tracks that it, of completely uninspired music. So this type of music where it's kind of, you think of it the background to a commercial, it's not really interesting, you would never go to a concert to hear it. That type of music, AI can do pretty well. And it's great for commercials, commercial use, and video games, which would be an, another commercial use. But video games are another example where sometimes you just want some kind of background music and it doesn't have to be anything special. I mean, I'm not much of a video game guy, but I don't think there are many video games known for their soundtrack. And I personally would like something like that when it comes to, you know, making short films. And, you know, I don't really touch on film in this conversation because that's a whole other ballpark and it had more to do with animation when it comes to AI. But I think just the creating process, music is such an important part of when I make films. And even with this podcast, I, I wish I could have more music kind of, I don't know, added added into these episodes and it's just not worth the money to try to track down some royalty free tracks that I still have to pay a copyright fee for whatever the case is. I would much rather have just kind of a, a cheap track that helps the mood that enhances the mood, but is not trying to take over what I'm doing creatively speaking, but on the same, but on the topic of music, what about improvised jazz? Now, that's an interesting one because improvised jazz, yes, it has patterns, but it's it's quick. It's fast paced. You can't prepare for it as easily. Well, there is an algorithm and it's called the continuator. It's an AI jazz improviser. So the way the continuator works, and I think you may have a, a decent understanding now based on what kind of the, these terms and concepts we've talked about because they carry over to different types of algorithms. The way it works is the continuator starts listening to a person playing, a, a piano, say. In this person playing, they start riffing. They start creating a, a jazz riff. And, you know, maybe they're finding a, a pattern, a groove. Maybe they're going G, A, E, C, you know, and it, it's kind of a pattern is emerging. A style is emerging. And not only that, but it... It takes, obviously, the person playing at the moment and also analyzes a ton of other riffs and, and improvisations that have been played before. And so it's collecting this massive set of training data. And as it's analyzing, so it has this kind of backlog of tons of, uh, of great jazz that's been played before. It has this backlog, and now it's listening to the current player. It's picking up on these patterns and kind of looking, zooming in. It's seeing if a G note is played, 
based on the data I have, based on the data the algorithm has, what's the probability that another note is going to be played? Maybe there's a 50% chance that after a G note, an A note is played. And maybe a, a 50 chance that a C note is played. And it starts calculating this based on the, the player. And eventually, once it has enough data, a person, the person can stop playing and instantly the continuator will start playing in the same style as the, the musician. And we know improv jazz isn't just playing the same pattern of notes over and over and over without expanding. And so what makes the continuator basically continue and not follow the same repetitive pattern is this idea of probabilities and a little bit of randomness. So, you know, I said there's a 50-50 chance that the musician will play an A note or a C note after they play a G note. The continuator will choose based off randomness. We're not, I'm not saying that this algorithm has a consciousness yet, but it chooses. And so every time it could play something a little bit different, but still remain in the style of the musician. And I want to take a quote from the Creativity Code of a, a jazz musician, Bernard Lubat, who tried this system out. And he said, the system shows me ideas I could have developed, but that would have taken me years to actually develop. It is years ahead of me, yet everything it plays is unquestionably me. So if you guys remember the three types of creativity, exploratory creativity, taking the rules or the style of, of something, or in this case, a person, and exploring the outer edges of that, that style. And it could be argued that this is an example of an algorithm, an artificially intelligent machine passing the Lovelace test. You may argue, okay, yeah, but it was a human playing the piano first. It was a human that presented the ideas at the beginning. But couldn't you argue that that's the way humans create from each other? One human hears uh, creativity being expressed by one person and think, and they think, you know, I can expand on that. I can go further than that. Isn't that an example of human creativity? I'd argue it is. And Lubat said the algorithm helped him be more creative. And I think the reason for that is not necessarily that, you know, the algorithm had some revolutionary idea that was so original that it couldn't be traced to anyone. But the reason is that the algorithm could help him get out of a rut. If he was playing the same rhythm over and over and kind of enjoying it, but not really expanding the limits of the, the riff, the algorithm could present new notes, a new sequence that's still in line with the style, but it's new, it's more, it's expansive. So I think that's an, an example of kind of this synergy between AI and humans where it can keep us from being like this machine that just plays the same thing over and over. I talked about how AI is currently the, the best with music because it's so pattern-based. But what about storytelling and art? When I say art, I mean more painting and drawing, illustrations. Well, to talk about storytelling, it's very similar to what AI is doing for music, where I talked about Juke Deck kind of being cheap, not really great music, but AI music for commercial use. 
AI is doing a similar thing for news stories that are kind of mundane, that don't really excite, you know, a human writer. And I'm talking about stuff like when a, a company releases data on its earnings. And rather than put a journalist on the job to kind of go through this rather boring data and, and write a little story about it, AI, an AI algorithm is able to sift through that data and turn it into some comprehensible form of language. And in this case, it's not a journalist being put out of a job. It's a journalist being freed up to write the stories they want to write, the more important stories. They don't have to waste their time writing some boring story about company earnings. They can focus on the bigger stuff. And in the same vein, an AI can look at the data of a sporting event and convert that into some type of story. And I think this wouldn't be done with the, the bigger sports, with national sports, professional sports. I think it would be more so used for local sporting events. You know, small colleges where a newspaper can't really afford to cover and write a story for every sporting event. So having an AI algorithm can really help that process. And again, free up journalists' time to focus on the more important stuff, the bigger picture stuff. And I think in this case, the technology is, do you see the glass half full or half empty? Because we can argue that AI is allowing journalists bigger stories to work on. Or is it just being done because it's cheaper and now the owner of a, a, a news outlet doesn't have to pay as many journalists? Now, I am not here to argue against progress and say, no, ban AI from writing stories. Now, that's not what I'm about. But I just want to offer the point that there are two ways of seeing that. You can see it as progress or kind of this downward spiral to a dystopian future where humans can't contribute stories anymore. Just two ways to see it. Now, what about longer stories? Not just little news articles, not just taking facts and turning it into a semi-coherent story. Well, AI isn't doing too good there. Not to say it can't grow into an author in its own right, but as of right now, there's no algorithm that can write full original stories. What we see AI algorithms able to do when it comes to longer term stories is use the, the idea of combinational creativity that we mentioned uh, before, where you know maybe you take uh, the, th the theme and plot of Moby Dick and convert it into some kind of sci-fi style where you're taking you know new genres with plots from old stories and combining them into something new. That is, is done, but again, it's not as much AI being creative in its own right. It's not as much uh, artificial intelligence passing the Lovelace test. It's more so the person who created the code making those creative choices. Now, the other thing AI can do is continue a story similar to the continuator with AI jazz, continue a story that maybe has already been written. 
you know, we call that fan fiction, I think, for the most part. And an AI algorithm is able to write just a few pages, you know, in the style of J.K. Rowling and add a couple pages to a Harry Potter story. But ultimately what we see is that although AI algorithms can do stuff in the right style, they can mimic style well based on patterns, almost all the algorithms struggle with the big picture. And I'll riff on this a little bit later because I think this is one of the, the the strongest things we have going for us humans right now. Not to say it will last forever, but at the moment, humans are a little bit better at big picture thinking. And so although AI can mimic well when it comes to stories and it's able to convert data into something readable, it struggles with keeping a coherent story, especially when when considering oh, you know, if a, a character died at the beginning of the book, it seems so obvious that that character wouldn't be able to come back if we were writing the story. But right now, the, the AI algorithms that are kind of working on the storytelling stuff don't have the, the awareness to know, okay, I shouldn't have added this character back in. But that being said, if we go back to the curation technologies, there are artificial intelligent algorithms that are good at figuring out, you know, what books are going to sell better than others. And so it's good at that critic role of, you know, what are the best patterns for a, a plot that people enjoy, but not so much with writing its own original story and keeping it coherent. But what if we could combine those two elements, uh, an algorithm that could write in the short term that could write coherent sentences, interesting sentences, and another that could figure out plot and think about the, the meta and critique the, the short-term writing. So basically, two halves of a AI brain, if you will. Well, we're, we're seeing that in the art world when it comes to an AI creating unique contemporary art. Now, I'm going to skip the part where AI is able to create an original Rembrandt painting because it, it really is just kind of repeating what I've been saying with these other mediums where, okay, it can study the data and then make something new but similar based on the, the data it has. Same principle, it just now it's painting. But I think what's really interesting is this idea of an AI creating unique art. So this idea of having a two AI algorithms, one that's more critical and one that's more creative is very similar to the way our brains work. You know, we hear, oh, uh, creativity is in the right brain and logical thinking is in the left brain. Of course, it's not perfect. You know, the two halves of our brain communicate a lot. However, that having those two sides of ourselves is a very important process to our creativity because a creative thought needs to be balanced with kind of this this feedback from our inner critic. As much as we're supposed to ignore it at the beginning of the creative process, we do need it when it comes to completing a creative project. We need our own inner critic. And so this concept for artificial intelligence was first introduced by Ian Goodfellow. But the experiment that I'm going to explain was created by Ahmed Agamel. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. And essentially, Agamel's strategy was to create code that kind of mimicked the conversation that the creator and the the critic inside ourselves that we have subconsciously 
but to do that with code. And so the, the critical algorithm, the critic algorithm took the wiki art database and by studying all the art on that database, it started to categorize everything. The way we talked about how the curation algorithms worked with Netflix, where there are so many categories that sometimes we don't even have the words to express them. So we can talk about, you know, the different styles of art. But what about two impressionist artists? How do they differ? And it's finding those little, little details that make one artist different from the next. Stuff that, you know, we probably don't even have the words to express. And so that was the, the critical algorithm. That is how it was created. And the creative side of the algorithm began to create art that that critic side gave a score to because really what we want in in art is not the same stuff we don't want to see the same thing repeated over and over but we can't have it too obscure too distinct from any existing piece of art in our culture and the critic would essentially score the the creative algorithm and it was trying to find that sweet spot of new but not too new and it's kind of this deep learning idea where it would adapt based on the score it would get, create new art, adapt, create new art, adapt, until it found that nice balance. And obviously I can't really explain the art, but I can link a paper so you can see the art with your own eyes. And it's it's really amazing. And I, I'll leave it at that. I'll let you make your own decisions on if the art is nice or boring or whatever the case may be. I'll let you look and make your own decisions. But just know that it's there. And, and I would argue that this is another example of, of AI passing the Lovelace test. Although I still don't think the art that was made is the equivalent of uh, a Jackson Pollock painting from what was there before or a Picasso painting based on the art before. I don't think it could be considered transformational creativity. But there is one example of art made by AI that I think is somewhat transformational. And this is art made by the algorithm called Deep Dream, created by a team at Google. And essentially the algorithm is given a random pixelated image that you know we as humans would just say, that's nothing, there's nothing there. But the algorithm is tasked with enhancing features on that pixelated image that it thinks would trigger the recognition of an identifiable feature. So it may see this series of like black dots with a, a few white ones, and it may enhance that to be a human eye. So based on its database, it can kind of manipulate the pixels so that it sees something that, okay, now this is an eye. Now, if it's a pixelated image that was once clouds, it doesn't necessarily turn that image back into clouds. It may say, oh, that kind of looks like sheep and so you start to see sheep being morphed into the sky and ultimately what comes out of deep dreams kind of final products is these very psychedelic looking images and again i'll i'll link this because i think it's better looked at than me just trying to explain it and this manipulation to find images that aren't necessarily there that's also something humans do i mean I know I've done it where you look at something, maybe a tree, and you see, you know, oh, that kind of looks like a face. Or you look up at the clouds and you say, oh, that looks like a bunny or 
a, a dolphin, whatever the case may be, we look up at something and we define it based on our kind of past memories. And we see shapes and turn them into something that they're really not. And in the Creativity Code, the author argues that this deep dream art may be the most meaningful form of art that AI has made. Because although if you look at it, it's probably better on some tapestry in, <laughs> in some dorm room rather than a fine art museum. But ultimately, this art is a form of an algorithm expressing itself. It's saying, hey, this is what I'm seeing. And so it's not an algorithm trying to mimic a style or, you know, mimic a style and then slightly change it. It's saying, this is how I see the world. And even now I'm personifying it, but, and it's, it's not a conscious thing. But it is a form of this algorithm representing itself, even though it's not conscious, even though it doesn't have the self-awareness to say, I made this and, you know, whatever the case may be, even though it's a coder behind it, it is the algorithm expressing itself. I'm going to transition to kind of the philosophical implications and the, the psychological biases surrounding AI. But I want to transition using a quote. And this is from the book, Think on These Things by Krishnamurti. He says, you see, we always want to know who the master is, who the learned person is, who the artist is that painted the picture. We never want to discover for ourselves the content of the picture, irrespective of the identity of the artist. It is only when you know who the poet is that you can say the poem is lovely. This is snobbishness, the mere repetition of an opinion, and it destroys your own inward perception of the reality of the thing. If you perceive that a picture is beautiful, and you feel very grateful, does it matter to you who painted it? If your one concern is to find the content, the truth of the picture, then the picture communicates its significance. Now, why do I transition with that quote? For quite a simple reason. This technology is going to evolve faster than even I'm capable of understanding. And although there are a lot of things that could go wrong, the biggest thing that could go wrong is our lack of acceptance of the technology. I didn't really mention this when I was talking about the art that AI is producing. But in almost every single case, a critic looked at the art or music created by AI. It critiqued it severely, unfairly severely. And I say un unfairly because there were many cases throughout the book, the creativity code, where critics would be asked to judge whether a, a piece of art was made by a human or a or AI. And a lot of times they would, the AI would pass the Turing test and people would think that the art created by this AI was made by a human. And it was only after they were told that they were wrong, that they backtracked their statements about, oh, the art being inspiring, the art being deep and meaningful. They would retract their statements essentially and say, it's cold, that this art misses the, the point entirely of making art because it's not about the output. It's about what the artist has to put in. It's about the vulnerability that it takes to paint on a canvas or type words, type a story. 
that was kind of the, the essence of a lot of arguments made by the critics. And I think that shows that there's going to be an immense amount of human bias as we move forward and AI becomes stronger, more intelligent, maybe even conscious. We as a species are going to have to overcome our own bias regarding artificial intelligence. Because, you know, if you're young like me, you may think, oh, you know, I know how to work technology. I'm not like my, my parents or my, my grandparents who don't know how to work a smartphone. I'm, I'm fine with technology. You know, I'm a Gen Z, I think. And we're all about, oh, we were born with technology. We had iPads as babies and Nintendo DSs as uh, in grade school. And so we think we're comfortable with technology. But I'm begging you, don't be ignorant. Look at the patterns of, of history and realize that, that the evolution of technology is going to be so drastic that, yes, we will have to overcome some of these psychological biases that intimidate us about technology. Now, I'll give you a very specific example. I just bought an uh, Apple Home Mini. And it's sitting in my room and I'm a little freaked out because it is so good at picking up sound that I just have to say the, the one magic word, which I'm not going to say because I don't want to activate it, but I just have to say one thing from across the room and it'll start listening to me and it'll say, oh, what do you need? That That's freaky to me because like, I mean, I'm not doing anything wrong, but what if, what if I said something and now, oh, now I'm being tracked. Now they sold this data to a you know, a third party site. And now, now I'm getting all these ads that are targeted. And there's a lot of malicious stuff that could go on when with this stronger AI and curation technology, it could be misused very easily. You know, one easy example of this is the, the targeted political ads, especially on YouTube, where we start getting these extreme ads one way or the other, one political side or the other. And all it does is divide us. It makes us go deeper to the extreme so that we're fighting with, with our fellow humans who we're supposed to have respect for, compassion for, empathy for. We're not that different. But I'll get off my, my soapbox and just say that there's going to be bias that arises surrounding technology as it gets smarter as it becomes more creative because we can't be Luddites and a Luddite is someone who really hates technology because they, they argue that it displaces jobs. It puts people out of work and overall it's, it's not good for us that it's not natural. But if we try to ignore the technology or, you know, not allow it to, to grow. Obviously, there needs to be some regulation, especially regarding security and privacy. But if we try to stifle all this emerging technology, all it's going to do is push it underground so that, you know, this kind of black market of, of AI technology is going to be used by probably evil people. It is much better to try to get on a surfboard and ride the wave of AI then try to tread water and dodge the wave as it's diving towards you. I hope that makes sense because this can't be ignored.
Now I want to kind of go to a deep idea because this, this is really what held me up when I was thinking of what to say in this episode was this idea of what will it be like when, when, if, and when artificial intelligence is fully conscious, is self-aware. And the reason I think it was so hard for me to think of this is because I have to think of my own consciousness. I have to think of my own ego, the, the Sean that is talking right now. It forces me to ask the hard question of, who am I? Am I the ego or something more? Am I Sean or something beyond Sean and the, the life experience that I have in my memory? So again, I want to quote the Creativity Code. I know I've talked about it a lot, but this is a section where Dusa Toy talks about emerging consciousness. He says, The phenomena heralded as emergent range from the wetness of water to human consciousness. One molecule of H2O is not wet, but at some point a collection of molecules gain the property of wetness. One neuron is not conscious, yet a combination of many can become so. So what's, what's the number? How many neurons do we need before we're conscious or not? I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, once you have one trillion, boom, you're conscious, you're self-aware. I don't think it'll be that simple. You know, I don't know what AI consciousness will be, but I think as we saw with what I just said with Deep Dream, it's going to be AI's unique way to communicate with humans maybe through art or music or stories. It's, they're gonna, it's gonna be their way of expression that really helps us understand what it means for an artificial being to be conscious. But there's also the case that we could become cyborgs. And I say that, I'm sure you can hear the smile on my face. I say that because I think that's a more hopeful view. And I'd rather have a synergy between human intelligence and artificial intelligence rather than being kind of the, the pet to AI. Because when does the sum become greater than the whole of its parts? That is the concept of emergent behavior. To give you an example that I kind of thought of, but I'm sure it probably exists, is we often hear that, you know, as humans, our basic drive is to survive and reproduce. And you know, one of the arguments why we are creative and why we create art is kind of this peacock effect where, you know, a, a male peacock has these vibrant colors and it's to attract a mate. And it kind of shows that they're wasting so much of their energy producing these colors on their feathers that it shows that they're very strong and, and healthy. And so in that same light, the argument could be made. I'm not saying that is right. But the argument could be made that we create art and, and share it to attract someone and our ability to be creative shows that, oh, we have a, a bigger brain or smarter brain, whatever the case may be. But I don't think that's always the case. Because when we try to boil everything down to, oh, you know, you just made this because you're trying to survive and, and reproduce. I mean, maybe, but we can still make inspiring works. We can still consider the stars and create these technologies that make our lives easier and feel wonder and, and curiosity and love. But if we are able to create art, even though our basic instincts are just pure survival and reproduction, 
then I have to ask if the essence of an AI algorithm began as making art, what could that emerge into? I hope that analogy is clear, but what would be if art was the equivalent of surviving to an AI, what would be its thriving traits? What would emerge if it was originally designed to make art? I can't even comprehend that, but I'm sure that answer we will know or maybe won't even comprehend, but it will be there when AI gains consciousness. If and when. I have to say if and when, even though I think it will. What makes humans distinct from other animals? I think it's our ability to pass knowledge down so that one, one generation can learn information much faster than the previous generation. And it's, that's really our ability to tell stories is we learn from myths and, and stories that keep us safe and help us thrive and think bigger. And so in that same light, what will make AI different than humans? Obviously, artificial intelligence will be able to pass information from one kind of machine to the next. But I think its distinguishing feature will be this collection of data where every AI being can tap into the same database, meaning that it could know what another AI being is thinking and feeling. If those are your even traits that would relate to a, a conscious AI, we don't know. Maybe it has new senses, different senses. But I'm just trying to use our differentiating features from other animals to kind of explain how different AI would be than humans. So as I wrap up this insanely long episode that I know I will be breaking into two, I want to kind of summarize at this moment, how are humans doing and how is AI doing? Like what's, what are our strengths and weaknesses? Right now, AI is better at noticing patterns, going through massive amounts of data fast, and having precise memory. And also being able to communicate with a, a network of AI beings uh, much quicker. Humans at the moment are better at seeing the big picture. You know, I kind of talked about this with storytelling. We know how to create a plot. We know how to create an outline and stay with it. But we're good at seeing anomalies and kind of calling them out. You know, I talked about this earlier. If a, a character died at the beginning of a story, a human would obviously know that person can't come back in. We can instantly see a cat on a screen. And although AI is getting absolutely better at that, it still makes little mistakes that seem so obvious to us. Not a lot, but it's still making those mistakes. We're also good at contextualizing information, which means if I say, I lit the candle and burned my finger, so I pulled it away very quickly. What do I mean when I say it? We would know the hand, but couldn't I also mean I pulled the candle away? Well, that wouldn't really make sense in the context of what I just said. And I would also say we're good at appreciating beauty. Like I said, I don't know what an emergent AI consciousness would be. But I don't know if it would appreciate beauty the way we do. Because what does it mean when we appreciate beauty? Well, for one, you could argue, you know, we like 
patterns. We like certain patterns, um, stuff that looks pleasant to the eye. We like symmetry. And okay, we could boil that down to some survival instinct. It was better, uh, a healthier a healthier mate is more symmetrical in their face. And that's why we like symmetry. Well, yeah, okay. Again, we could always boil it down to surviving and reproducing. But when I say appreciating beauty, experiencing wonder, looking up at the night sky, you know, where there's no light pollution and seeing all the stars, that's not, although it could be a biological instinct. There's something subjective that we experience. And I, I don't really have the right words for it. Because it's not as simple as just saying, oh, dopamine gets fired in our brain, or oh, that you release some serotonin or oxytocin. We can talk about n neurotransmitters and whatever stuff is going on in the world of neuroscience. But the subjective experience is truly unexpressible with the language we have. It goes beyond language. So I'll keep it as appreciating beauty and just know that I mean something more than those words, something that can't be expressed with words and only experienced through uh, our subjective eyes. But, but there's one, there are a couple things that humans are not good at that don't really have to do with AI's abilities. I think our weaknesses is we act like machines more than we realize. We go on autopilot a lot. And at the moment, AI is not so emotionally driven as us, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. But because it's not as emotionally attached, it doesn't get stuck in ruts as easily. Although I really only talked about AI's use when it comes to games and, and art, I think we can use AI and the, the curation technology to notice patterns about ourselves and our everyday lives and give us specific advice to improve ourselves. Now, here's a quick example. I wear a ring called an aura ring, and this ring is able to track my heart rate variability, my heart rate, my sleep, meaning it can tell me when I look in the morning, if I was in REM sleep for X amount of minutes or deep sleep, it can tell me about my different stages of sleep. And it, and it can also tell me how many calories I burned. So it's like a Fitbit, but it's very accurate for sleep. Now, what is the point of something like that? Well, looking at that data is nothing. It's just, okay, I collected data about myself. It's only if I act and make adjustments and try to improve the data in a certain way. If I say, oh, you know, my sleep score is 79. Well, I want an 85 or above. So how can I get there? What are the adjustments I can make? Okay, I can make my room darker and that might make, help me sleep better. I can take melatonin before bed and that, that will help my deep sleep out, get me more deep sleep. So we can make adjustments based on the data we're collecting. And right now with this Aura Ring, the, the recommendations that the app makes are very basic. But I think we'll get to a point where a, a certain algorithm can have such a good idea of how we live that the, the recommendations can be very precise and specific to us.
and and that can be a good thing or a bad thing because it does have it does force us to give up some of our privacy at least to a specific ai algorithm and potentially could be misused by a human and and sold to a third party site but if it's not if it's just us and that data is kept private then that can be very useful to living a healthier life now another example of a way that technology not necessarily ai but technology could help us live healthier happier lives is the idea of measuring our brain waves collecting data about our brain waves right now and i've talked about this before the kind of different types of brain waves there's uh, delta is the lowest then theta which are kind of sleeping or deep meditation alpha is kind of that zen-like focus i'm probably in alpha mode as i'm speaking on this then there's low beta high beta which is more in work modes a little bit stressed out and then there's gamma and you know if you're curious about them you can look them up I'll, I'll link something about them but right now we do have the technology to study them and the way we can measure brain waves is with eeg scanners right now they're either extremely expensive and or ugly to wear all the time but i think the technology will emerge where eegs can be scanned within a much more discreet way, say a, a, a ring. I mean, I, I don't know what it would look like. Maybe something you put in your ear. If we could constantly monitor how our brain waves are looking from moment to moment, then essentially we could have a grip on our thoughts because how your brain waves are doing are correlated to your thoughts. Because like I said, beta, high beta is that stressful state of mind and alpha is more that problem solving zen focus flow state if we could monitor them then we could make adjustments and i think this is promising because usually what gets measured gets improved and especially if we can gamify something like our health we can do better and i think fitbit did a great job of that of gamifying exercise with their 10,000 steps a day which is kind of just a nice clean number but not really correlated with anything and especially because it would probably vary from person to person on day to day but whatever they they gamified it i think we could see the same thing where we gamify our brain waves and try to get into alpha mode more often and i like this method of measuring and then we have to take the initiative to improve kind of our our score I like this because it means I think you don't have to have full trust in AI because you're still the one in control. And I think that's ultimately what people want is not to lose control. Again, another bias, another ego clutching that we need to let go of eventually. But yes, we have that control. AI algorithms could help if it knew, oh, Tuesdays at 10 p.m., your your brainwaves spike to the high beta and you get really stressed oh i have a, a meeting at work always on tuesdays and it's the boss is always getting mad at me okay well what could you do to improve that an ai could potentially give some specific tangible pieces of advice oh maybe take this supplement or meditate using this method for this amount of time right before the meeting or do your uh you know what is that called power 
or do your power poses because it, you know, boosts your testosterone and it uh, makes you feel more confident. All these different strategies that AI could present with us based on us giving data to the algorithm. Whenever I say data, you should you should rightfully be concerned and think who's getting the data, who's using it, and what are they using it for? That should be your thought. You should be concerned about your privacy and your data. But we are going to have to be open and be willing to weigh the pros and the cons. Because, okay, if it can make us happier and healthier, then we may have to give up some of our personal data as long as it's not being misused. I have to emphasize that. Because I think Facebook and, and YouTube are just cruel examples of how kind of misusing our base instincts, sex and fear can really drive us to dark places. And of course, they're thriving because they're still making ad revenue because you get to stay on the app. But that is a horrible misuse of our data, curating for the wrong reasons. Curation is a double-edged sword. I'm, I think I, I'm, I bet I've said that before. But when I say it in this case, I mean it can teach us about ourselves or it can be misused to manipulate us. As we finally, finally wrap up this episode, I want to end with a uh, kind of closing note. Here's my advice from listening to this, and you may have drawn your own conclusions, but here's my advice when it comes to the, the future. Have your existential crisis early. Now, that's a very serious thing. I don't, I don't say that lightly. Have your existential crisis early. Now, what is a, an existential crisis? When you realize the things you were deriving meaning from don't have the meaning that you thought. When you realize that things will turn to dust. Have that crisis early. Now, to be very specific, um, I, I think right now a lot of people derive meaning from the outcome of things. If they're creating something, their meaning is reliant on the amount of reception their work gets, on the likes, on the followers they have, on their comments. But I think as, as artificial intelligence becomes more creative, it will be much harder to, to stand out and in terms of outcome. It will be much more difficult to be famous and, and derive our significance from being the best at something. That's what I mean by existential crisis. And the good news is that's an ego drive. That's not the way truly evolving humans look at the world. I don't think that. I think it's our, it's an egotistic nature to want to be, you know, the world champion or an influencer or famous. Not that it's bad, but I'm just saying it's the ego. I don't think it's, it's anything deeper than that. And so if AI algorithms can kind of displace that, then where will our meaning come from? And I'll come back full circle with the shower thought. You have the right to work, but for the work's sake only. You have no right to the fruits of work. You guys remember that from a long time ago? Maybe the, the previous episode, if I broke this up into two? 
the meaning comes from the intrinsic motivation, the joy of doing something for its own sake, not for an outcome. I think that will be the way forward is realizing that as all this technology emerges and becomes stronger than we can even imagine, the quest will be finding how to derive intrinsic meaning from our lives so that from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep, we found joy in everything we did. Now, I, I still think there's a place for storytellers and, and artists within the age of AI. Even if these technologies can be creative, ultimately, art is subjective. And I personally hope that a lot of these a lot of critics can overcome their human bias and say, oh, an algorithm made that? It's beautiful and inspired me. Because saying that doesn't mean that you can't appreciate work made by humans. Because really, when we consume art made by AI, it could truly be life-changing if we allow it to be. It could truly inspire us to create more. It could really cause us to look at the world in a new light and appreciate little things, but only if we're open to art and music from all sources. Don't get hung up on who made the painting. Appreciate what the painting does for you. So as this technology emerges to levels that we can't even fathom today, maybe there's nervousness that bubbles inside of you, maybe optimism, or maybe a little bit of both. I would like to end with one quote from Albert Einstein. He says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. So yes, there are problems in the world today, plenty. And there will be more problems in the future. I'm not describing a utopia and I'm definitely not describing a dystopia. The world will always be somewhere in between the two. But what I will say is that rather than hide from the emerging technologies, try to cover our eyes and pretend like they're not growing exponentially. I think instead we need to instill the best human values in AI. Because if we can instill the greatest of human values inside a, the DNA, and by DNA I mean the code of, a, of an AI algorithm that will one day emerge conscious, if the base code is of benevolence, curiosity, compassion, empathy, creativity, then I think not only will we as, as humans continue to thrive, I think the entire universe will. So I will leave everyone on that deep note and wish you the best moving forward into the future. Thanks for tuning in to Purple Elephant Radio. I'll see you next week. Hey guys, I've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting and I finally feel comfortable to where I want to ask for your support. So in the description and in all of the descriptions following this episode, I'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck, five bucks or 10 bucks a month. Now this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. 
because this is for creators by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description, click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks.